Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Holcroft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio, 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another Thursday evening where we will take up Special Topic Thursday, huh? Special Topic Thursday, each and every Thursday evening, I take a question from you and or questions and respond to them. And this week, I'm going to take up the question, why is St. Francis of Assisi so popular today? Again, why is St. Francis of Assisi so popular today? And maybe I can add (laughs) 800 years later, all this time later, why has this saint, probably like no other saint, withstood the test of time? And so I thought I would take up this question because, well, yesterday was the feast of St. Francis of Assisi, and certainly I think this question came through because of that great Memorial Day. Now, I will be drawing primarily from G.K. Chesterton's work, St. Thomas Aquinas and St. Francis of Assisi. Uh, In this work, he takes up these two great friars and does a kind of comparison and contrast to really draw out like only G.K. Chesterton can, where they might be similar, but at the same time, where they might be so different. And in how they are similar and different, this speaks to the beauty of the body of Christ. So I really do recommend this work from G.K. Chesterton. What I'm going to do this evening is actually read a piece from G.K. Chesterton on St. Francis of Assisi because I think it answers your question better than I could ever answer your question. I will reflect with it for sure, but I do think it would be well worth our while to uh, read what G.K. Chesterton has to say by way of his opening into St. Francis of Assisi. Now, before we go there, I was thinking about this, and I thought it would be beneficial for us to reflect at least a little bit with who this man is before we just jump into why this man has withstood the test of time, because without that backdrop, I don't think we would really appreciate St. Francis of Assisi. So off the top, the first question we ought to pose is, when did this man live? When did St. Francis live? Well, St. Francis of Assisi was born in either 1181 or 1182. We are actually not sure. We have no historical documentation that pinpoints whether it was 1181 or 1182. And he died in 1226. So this makes him 44 or 45 years old. He was born and died in Assisi, Italy, which if you're a faithful listener, you probably know this is a place where I visited Um, In point of fact, this was where I went for my honeymoon, to Assisi, Italy. It is not only a picturesque place, a beautiful place aesthetically, it is also a very holy place. Certainly the spirit of St. Francis is still there. What about his name? Many, I think, people think that Francis's name changed because when you enter a religious community, you often change your name. But that is not the case here. He was born Giovanni Bernardoni, which in the English is John, right? But in his infancy, his father, uh, Pietro, or Peter, began calling him Francesco, which if you translate that, 
means the Frenchman. It is a, a familiar term. So although he was born John, he ultimately became Francesco or Francis in the eyes of his father. Now, what was St. Francis's early life like? Well, turning to the Catholic Encyclopedia, we know that he was not very studious. And really, his literary education, for all intents and purposes, remained incomplete. Although associated with his father in trade, he showed little liking for a merchant's career. His father, Pietro, was a merchant, and his parents seemed to indulge his every whim. Thomas of Chilano, which was his first biographer, if you want to know anything about St. Francis of Assisi, read Thomas Chilano. Uh, having studied at the Franciscan University of Steubenville and discerned the Franciscan way, I can tell you that Thomas Chilano is an extraordinary writer. And alongside of G.K. Chesterton and his insights, I would highly recommend you go to Thomas Chilano. It's interesting there because Thomas Chilano would speak in very um, severe terms of Francis's youth. As Chilano writes, <laughs> no one loved pleasure more than Francis. He had a ready wit. He would often sing merrily. And in his youth, which makes his story so striking, he delighted in fine clothes and that kind of ostentatious uh, showy display. He was uh, handsome. He was very joyful. He was always courteous. And in many ways, he became the prime favorite among the young nobles of Assisi, the foremost in every feet of arms, the, the leader of civil rebels, and as Thomas Chalana once put it, the very king of what we'd call today frolic. So St. Francis of Assisi, as we know him to be this man <laughs> who lived in poverty, you can already begin to appreciate his conversion. But even at this time, Francis showed an instinctive sympathy with the poor, and though he spent money lavishly, if you're going to identify this man for who he is, he did have that sympathy uh, towards the poor, and we'll speak to that more later. What about his ties to the military? Certainly his ties to the military were very important in his narrative. Well, when he was about 20, Francis went out with the townsmen to fight the Perugians in one of the petty skirmishes so frequent at that time between uh, the rival cities. The Assisians were defeated on this occasion, and Francis was held captive for more than a year in Prugia. Now we speak to this because it was there where he contracted a low fever, and this would appear to have turned his thoughts to the things of eternity. At least the emptiness of the life he had been leading would come to him during that long illness. Uh, according to the Catholic Encyclopedia, not long after his return to Assisi, while St. Francis was praying before an ancient crucifix in the forsaken wayside chapel of St. Damien's below the town, he heard a voice saying, Go, Francis, and repair my house, which, as you see, is falling into ruin. Now, my wife and I had the chance to go down into that chapel, and it is an extraordinary place to visit. Earlier, I was talking about how the, the spirit of St. Francis of Assisi is still there. If you go down into that chapel and pray before that uh, San Damiano crucifix, which is now there, it is just an extraordinary encounter. 
I mean, any time where you go to a place where God has visited there in history, it is an anointed place. Now, as it relates to the story of St. Francis of Assisi and this extraordinary encounter he had with God, he took this literally as referring to the ruinous church where he actually knelt. So he hears the words, go Francis and repair my house, which as you see is falling into ruin. And as opposed to taking this in a way of rebuilding the Catholic church from within because it had become corrupt in areas, he took it literally (laughs) to the actual ruinous church where he knelt. So Francis went to his father's shop, impulsively bundled together a load of colored drapery, and mounting his horse, hastened to Foligno, then a market of some importance, and there sold both horse and stuff to procure the money needful for the restoration of St. Damien's. And this is a very famous event in the life of St. Fran- Francis of Assisi, as he essentially postured himself before all the people as a man now converted. That being said, as you can well imagine, his parents, especially his father, did not take to this very well. Uh, the elder Bernadone very much was scandalized by this. In point of fact, Francis, by his father, was dragged home, beaten, bound, and locked in a dark closet. He was so ashamed of Francis. But it was during this time that he was freed by his mother during his father's absence. And at that time, Francis returned at once to St. Damien's, where he found a shelter with the officiating priest. And to make a long story short here, St. Francis of Assisi was a man who, in the end, decided to follow the radicality of the gospel. He took the gospel text for the gospel text. When Jesus says, you cannot follow me if you do not leave everything behind. So this is what he did. He eventually, not by his intention, started a religious community. And I say not by his intention because, in the end, it was only by the workings of the Holy Spirit that he would eventually start a community, uh, the Franciscans as we know them today, because of the great following. I mean, if you go back into the life of St. Francis, what you quickly discover is the kind of impact that he had so quickly. It's interesting, in his trip to Rome, when it was asked of him to, to go to Rome to start a community and establish a rule of conduct, the then Pope said, we have never seen a man live like this. We have never seen a man uh, espoused towards poverty like this. So why not? He's simply living the gospel. And eventually, after a dream, he does allow St. Francis to start the Franciscan way, the Franciscan community. With all of that in mind, I did want to turn our attention to G.K. Chesterton because I think it does very much speak to the question, why is St. Francis of Assisi so popular today. So this is G.K. Chesterton in his opening chapter on St. Francis of Assisi titled, The Problem of St. Francis. He says this, a sketch of St. Francis of Assisi in modern English may be written in one of three ways. Between these, the writer must make his selection. And the third way, which I attempt to adopt, is in some respects the most difficult of all. At least, it would be the most difficult if the other two were not impossible. First, he may deal with this great and most amazing man as a figure in secular history 
and a model of social virtues. He may describe this divine demagogue as being, as he probably was, the world's finest and most sincere democrat. He may say, what means very little, that St. Francis was in advance of his age. He may say, what is quite true, that St. Francis anticipated all that is most liberal and sympathetic in the modern mood, the love of nature, the love of animals, the sense of prosperity, and even property. All those things that nobody understood were familiar to St. Francis of Assisi. All those things that were first discovered by Leo Tolstoy had been taken for granted by St. Francis. He could be presented not only as a human, but a humanitarian hero, indeed as the first hero of humanism. So there again, I think you have more of that answer to your question, especially in this last sentence. He could be presented not only as a human, but a humanitarian hero, indeed as the first hero of humanism. So I can answer the question, why is he so famous today? And we can talk about creation and we can talk about animals. And certainly that would be part of the answer. But I think what G.K. Chesterton says here gets to the heart of it because we all want to be a humanitarian. We all want to be a hero of humanism, what it means to be human, right? So there's maybe something about the combination of the two, his love of creation, his love for animals, and this reality of him being a humanitarian. But again, note what G.K. Chesterton says. This ultimately is going to come up short. He continues, He has been described as a sort of morning star of the Renaissance. And in comparison with all these things, his ascetical theology can be ignored or dismissed as a contemporary accident, which was fortunately not a fatal accident. His religion can be regarded as a superstition in the consideration of which it would be unjust to condemn St. Francis for his self-denial or unduly chide him for his chastity. So there you have G.K. Chesterton taking on a third aspect of why he might be so attractive. Because the way in which today religion is seen as superstition and not imposing, Chesterton continues, it is quite true that even from so detached a standpoint, his stature would still appear heroic. There would still be a great deal to be said about the man who tried to end the Crusades by talking to the Muslims or who interceded with the emperor for the birds. The writer might describe in a purely historical spirit the whole of that great Franciscan inspiration that was felt in the poetry of Dante, in the miracle plays that made possible the modern drama, and in so many other things that are already appreciated by the modern culture. Second, he may go to the opposite extreme and decide, as it were, to be defiantly devotional. He may make the theological enthusiasm as thoroughly the theme as it was the theme of the first Franciscans. He can find an austere joy, so to speak, in parodying the paradoxes of asceticism and all the holy topsy-turvydom of humility. He can stamp the whole history with the stigmata, record fast like fights against a dragon, till in the vague modern mind St. Francis is as dark as a figure as St. Dominic. In short, he can produce what many in our world will regard as a sort of photographic negative. I, this is a beautiful description here. Like a photographic negative, 
the reversal of all lights and shades, what the foolish will find as impenetrable as darkness, and even many of the wise will find almost as invincible as if it were written in silver upon white. Such a study of St. Francis would be unintelligible to anyone who does not share his religion, perhaps only partly intelligible to anyone who does not share his vocation. So here, my friends, as G.K. Chesterton describes to us how one might approach St. Francis of Assisi in this second mode, in this second way, um, you really do find a lot of truth in it in a similar way that you might find a lot of truth in the first one. But as G.K. Chesterton would take up as a non-Catholic, which is interesting, and I will tell you this, I don't subscribe to everything he says as much as I subscribe to the way in which he communicates the life of St. Francis as he was espousing towards a man after Christ's own heart. I do think there's things, even in this second piece, that do speak to St. Francis, especially the devotional part that did, in fact, lead to the way in which he uh, embraced creation, animals, and all the rest. Now, to G.K. Chesterton's credit, he does speak to this. So here he says, The third way, which I will try to do here, (laughs) I will attempt to put myself in the position of the ordinary modern outsider and inquire, as indeed the present writer is still largely and was once entirely in that position. He may start from the standpoint of a man who already admires St. Francis, but only for those things which such a man finds admirable. He may try to use what is understood to explain what is not understood. He may say to the modern English reader, here is a historical character which is admittedly attractive to many of us already by its gaiety, its romantic imagination, its spiritual courtesy and camaraderie, but which also contains elements evidently equally sincere and emphatic, which seem to you quite remote and repulsive. But after all, This man was a man and not half a dozen men. (laughs) What seems inconsistent to you did not seem inconsistent to him. Let us see whether we can understand, with the help of the existing understanding, these other things that seem now to be doubly dark by their intrinsic gloom and their ironic contrast. I do not mean, of course, that I can really reach such a psychological completeness in this crude and curt outline, but I do mean that this is the only controversial condition that I shall here assume, that I am dealing with the sympathetic outsider. I shall not assume any more or any less agreement than this. A materialist may not care whether the inconsistencies are reconciled or not. A Catholic may not see any inconsistencies to reconcile. Let me tell you, my friends, as a Catholic, what is important for us to understand and what he's saying right now, which is true, is that in some cases... (laughs) <laughs> the Catholic will just see the man who loves creation and embraces animals. They don't see his devotionals. They don't see the human struggle. What is so important for us to remember is that every saint had a past. And in that past, they were a sinner. Did they stop sinning? Well, of course not. They continued to sin. But what they realized is that sainthood, that is sanctity in the pursuit of holiness, is discovered in the struggle and grace. St. Francis of Assisi would never say, you're never going to fall. No, he would say, you're going to fall, 
But this is how you get up a second time. This is how you get up a third time, a fourth time, so on and so forth. This is what the saint is about. And so just to wrap up G.K. Chesterton here, I am here addressing the ordinary modern man, sympathetic but skeptical. And I can only rather hazily hope that by approaching the great saint story through what is evidently picturesque and popular about it, I may at least leave the reader understanding a little more than he did before the consistency of a complete character. That by approaching it in this way, we may at least get a glimmering of why the poet who praised his Lord the Son often hid himself in a dark cavern, of why the saint who was so gentle with his brother the wolf was so harsh to his brother the ass, as he nicknamed his own body, right? Of why the singer who rejoiced in the strength and gaiety of the fire deliberately rolled himself in the snow. Of why the very song which cries with all the passion of a pagan, praise be for our sister Mother Earth, which brings forth varied fruits and grass and glowing flowers, ends almost with the words, praise be God for our sister, the death of the body. In the end, my friends, what we are made to appreciate with St. Francis of Assisi is that there is something in this man that did reach all people. But if we are going to stop at just that one thing, that one thing being his love for animals, his love for creation, his love to be humanitarian, ultimately, again, would leave us without a full appreciation of who this man was and continues to be for us as he is interceding on our behalf in the throne room of grace. This was a man who was devoted to the poverty of Christ. G.K. Chesterton was talking about, and I've noted this in the past, this language, this very familiar language that he would use, brother, son, sister, moon. There were two ladies in St. Francis of Assisi's life. There is Lady Pica, his mother, right? Pica Bernadone, and Lady Poverty. Lady Poverty. Poverty, in the eyes of Francis, esteemed such a high honor as Lady because he understood that to be without was to be with. He understood that less was always more. He understood God's arithmetic. Where there appears to be a negative, there's actually a positive. Where there appears to be loss, there is gain. Where there appears to be death, there is life. He understood that poverty is the key that unlocks the whole Christian mystery. Why? Because this is what God himself espoused to here on earth. Jesus Christ, from the crib to the cross, lived in this profound poverty. I mean, so profound that in his ministry, he was homeless, right? I mean, this was the kind of radicality of the gospel I was talking about earlier, the kind of radical response that that St. Francis of Assisi gave because ultimately it was a response to our Lord's words, imitate me. He was simply imitating him, imitating his homelessness, imitating his poverty, imitating his detachment. (coughs) Excuse me. It could never be stressed enough the reason behind him giving poverty this great title, Lady, because he saw it as the key that unlocks the Christian mystery. In his devotion to Christ, 
he quickly discovered the deeper wisdom behind the first beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall inherit the kingdom of God. He understood that if we depend upon God for our whole existence, we will inherit the kingdom of God and our whole lives will be set onto the path of holiness. And there's a reason why the first beatitude is the first beatitude and ultimately how that beatitude is the opening verse to the whole Sermon on the Mount, that sermon which offers us a clear vision of what it means to be fully human. It is all hinged to that reality of being poor in God, that we would be dependent upon God for our whole existence. This was the lived reality of St. Francis of Assisi. Now, one last tidbit, and certainly one of the reasons why we love St. Francis of Assisi is that he gives us the nativity scene, right? He was the first to put together that beautiful nativity scene. He had a love for the incarnation. He himself would love to give flesh to the faith, huh? He was very sacramental in how he catechized, right? So when he was teaching, he put together this beautiful nativity scene to help augment, if you will, his instruction on the beauty of the incarnation. And certainly, (laughs) this took, right? All right, with that, let us close with a word of prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. All glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end, amen. And St. Francis of Assisi, pray for us. Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 5.30 here on KKXX. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.org.